Hello, and welcome back to the Dark Path podcast. I am Luke Trottier. Here, in the wet west coast of BC, the seasons are shifting. It's been a weird summer, and the weirdness continues. Madness in the human world is the norm across the world, and seems to be increasing in amount and intensity, but the um, beauty of nature never fades. So that's a good thing. Now, I've always really liked the spring and the fall. I love seeing nature uh, change dramatically. The colors and the new growth in the spring or, or the uh, just the, the change. I like seeing the change. So in this part of the world, from the months ranging from uh, September to roughly late November, the weather shifts here out of the summer heat and into the standard for the west coast here, a gray and fairly wet winter. <clears throat> With that shift, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, for better or for worse, comes the yearly cold and flu season, which is likely to be significant this year. Fortunately, that thought is lingering uh, like a dark cloud on the horizon for everyone at the moment, because we don't know what that's going to bring. But we can look to the past. So traditionally, in the winter, um, it was a time uh, when it was cold and when it was hard to survive for cooperation and sharing amongst people. Uh, for much of human history, it wasn't easy to survive. And so that uh, made it critical for people to work together. Uh, winters also had a tendency to be kind of boring to a degree. If your storehouses were filled adequately and uh, you had enough firewood and other supplies, um, there was a possibility there wouldn't be much that you could do. Um, you know, the ground is frozen, there's no crops to grow, and uh, hunting would be limited. So people would find ways to uh, entertain themselves. They would play games. Uh, they would work on crafts and skills. And in the end, they would just generally spend a great deal of time interacting with one another. Uh, we are fundamentally social creatures, of course. This is fundamental. So we do need to interact with each other regardless if it's winter or not. But in the end, that behavior is much like the way that a beaver needs to build a dam. It's, it's part of the programming of the creature. You have to do it. So for me, I think about when I was a kid. Um, my family would often hold some pretty wonderful and boisterous family dinners, usually the Thanksgiving and Christmas particularly, but Easter as well. Um, and they were great. Multiple generations would gather. Um, we'd eat some truly amazing food. Um, imbibe a little bit of drink, but mainly laugh and hug and talk. Um, as a child, I had no idea how lucky I was to experience that. Um, now as an adult, <laughs> I uh, realize that those memories are more precious than um, any material wealth uh, could ever be. So, while, of course, many of you will have your own fond uh, memories of various types of gatherings, um, group dynamics, um, I am willing to bet they involve other people. More, I bet that they involve some food or drink, too. 
But uh, the point is, I bet those people that you had those fond memories with had smiling faces and that you even had some degree of physical contact with them. And what I mean, like an example of that, would be the hug, the famous hug we all know. Hugs are so much more than just a simple way to communicate an acknowledgement um, of the other person. So that, and that's a whole thread and uh, something I do want to uh, explore and discuss more in the future, uh, in future podcasts. So we'll come back to that at some point. But in any case, if we think of our favorite memories, like uh, I mentioned my childhood family dinners, uh, holiday dinners, um, it can be worthwhile to ask yourself, why is that kind of experience so meaningful? Why does it touch you in the depths of your soul so well? Well, obviously, uh, one key element is that there are other people involved and they have a positive interaction with you in those cases. Um, and then there's also the idea of the shared food or drink or even activity. And all of those things essentially serve as a focal point for the interaction. Now, having said that, I just want to also say this. Um, in exploring this idea, I know without hesitation that the love I have for my family and for others, it just is. I don't have any desire to justify my feeling. I just know that it is and that is enough on that level. So I'm not questioning the importance on a, an emotional level. But that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile exploring how that phenomenon, um, that experience, might fit into the labyrinth of infinite creation that we call life and reality. So, I mean, why would such an experience be so important, right? It, 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 it is obvious in some ways maybe, but it isn't too. Now, there's a list of needs, made uh, human needs, made famous by an American psychologist called uh, Abraham Maslow. Um, it's called, surprisingly, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. You can look it up. I encourage you to look it up. It's an important concept. Now, uh, this list rest upon, rests upon some presuppositions, and I would like to mention them before sharing the list itself. So, first, um, one of the key elements of this list is that it's not a list of needs, it's a list of needs, but these needs aren't based on just simply being alive. So the aim of seeking to fulfill these needs is not survival alone. Um, that The needs of staying alive are uh, purely, from a purely, purely physical standpoint, um, are addressed in the first level of these needs, uh, but the rest of these uh, requirements or needs are much more complex and have everything to do largely with the relationship between individuals and the people uh, that they interact with in their communities. Now, uh, secondly, it also assumes that um, human potential exists, uh, which is a whole thought unto itself. And it goes further by um, assuming that that human potential is best met by adhering to these needs like a sort of roadmap. Um, it is also a hierarchical list for a reason. 
each need or requirement on the list must be met before the following ones can be addressed with any degree of relevance. So, I feel that Maslow's hierarchy of needs are very insightful. Um, but to be sure, I am not claiming that um, I understand them better than anyone else. I'm, I just want to refer to them right now as part of this uh, discussion. So the, 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 the hierarchy of needs are, first, uh, physiological needs. So food, water, shelter, immediate survival elements. The second level of these needs uh, is what he calls safety requirements, which is to be able to move around through society without being attacked or forced to do things that are self-harming. Um, it also relates to the idea that uh, an individual is able to access resources in their, uh, in their community, in their environment that they need to survive. So uh, that's the second one. The third uh, one is the need for love and belonging. This is the need for care and comfort. Um, it's very obvious in, say, an infant who has to be cared for. But for everyone, love and being loved is very important. Uh, this is a need for developing deep bonds and shared experience with various relationships, uh, within various relationships. Uh, the most obvious one is, again, within families, but it doesn't have to access, uh, be that exclusively. The fourth need uh, is called esteem and is often referred to, or people know it as self-esteem. It is a need to be recognized um, and valued within your community. People often call this the need to be heard. Um, and we'll come back to that. The final one, the fifth need, is what's called the need of self-actualization. This is the need for the individual to create for themselves their own highest potential in the world. And uh, this is an important idea. This final need then, this requirement of self-actualization, um, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant insight, I think. And like many other aspects of um, the best psychological understandings that we currently have, this uh, need seems in many ways to harken back to some very, very old wisdom traditions, which is always interesting whenever you can see that. And it does this because it tends to transcend or, sorry, it does this, the, the fifth need, the fifth level here, transcends the hierarchy of the needs because it does require all the previous steps to be achieved, but it also comes back to the needs of the individual as an individual. And this echoes the initial need of meeting basic survival requirements. So you need to eat enough food to survive as an individual, and you need to develop yourself to its fullest potential as an individual, even though that's nested within the community. Now, it sounds, and I think it is, uh, this idea of self-actualization. It sounds, and I think it is in many ways, very similar to the idea of enlightenment in, in many spiritual practices, um, but not necessarily exactly that either. Now, if we can agree that there is something worthwhile to the idea of aiming at human potential in terms of meeting people's needs as Maslow lists out, then, I believe that compassion is like the road that that possibility must be built upon. Not a suggestion, really, but it's really a, a need <laughs> in its own way. 
So it's here too that the dark path reasserts itself, as I've discussed before. It and in a profound and subtle uh, and a profound and subtle awareness must be developed in order to walk that dark path with this concept in mind. So I want to focus on the idea of compassion. Now, compassion, like humility and patience, can be described as a virtue. More fundamentally, compassion is a term that attempts to describe a very complex and deeply layered aspect of human behavior. Now, despite the complexities, this idea of compassion is undeniably good, um, and that's universally understood by most everyone. You don't run into people that say, you know, compassion's a bad thing, you know, that doesn't seem to exist. But what is compassion, and why? is it at the crux of so much of what makes life good and worth living? How does it fit into our needs? And Maslow's idea of the hierarchy of needs, both as individuals and as a society. The cornerstone of it, of compassion, rests on the critical, critical understanding that the world is populated by others. Uh, it is often first seen in the recognition that other people in the world suffer, like you yourself suffer. Pain and anguish manifest in many ways and can have a huge degree of variance in measurable intensities. However, through compassion, we can all understand that pain is pain. Grief is known by all and no one gets a life without some pain and some grief. This means seeing the suffering in others. Um, this means seeing the suffering others must deal with, I'm sorry, can build a bridge that we can all be connected by. However, that's not all. If suffering is universal, then so too is joy and love. So with that bridge, we cannot just see that there are others sharing the world with us, but that they also have vivid and meaningful lives. Their tears of joy, and the tears of laughter are as real as our own. That is the key to compassion. Now how or why would a behavioral pattern like this develop? Are there some advantages to being preset, to being capable of knowing compassion? Well, yeah, obviously um, there are, and there are some pretty huge ones too, uh, very relevant ones. So as I said earlier in this post, we are social creatures. We must interact with each other in order to survive. It's not an option we could change if we wanted to, uh, which why would you want to, but you know, if we wanted to. It is the result of our evolutionary path. There are no human or even pre-human populations that function without cooperation and social interaction. So right from the raising of the child to the protection of the elderly, uh, we need each other. We really do. So, going back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, we can see that since prehistory, the first basic need of being able to survive has been built on our ability for group cooperation. Now, uh, at this level, uh, I see only the seeds of compassion. Uh, they're well planted, but uh, they're not exactly being articulated. At this level of need, it's more of a survival instinct, but it does create the ground from which compassion can grow, and that's the key. So, 
After that, the next three needs in Maslow's list are all dependent on the dynamics between the individual and the community in which they live. And remember, uh, the aim of the hierarchy of needs that Maslow lists out isn't merely survival. It is a fulfillment of human potential. That potential could never be reached by an individual alone. What I mean by that is like, for instance, I did not create the language I'm using right now to communicate. Um, neither did I build the house I'm living in, and, and etc. So my ability to survive or my ability to thrive and, and, and strive for my success in my life is dependent on others being able to function in society as easily as I do. Now, this of course gets muddied in the challenges inherent in navigating the social landscapes of life. But as a consequence, it's here that I want to point out compassion must be more than just an instinctual behavior. It has to be a conscious intention to be genuine. So, if compassion starts off as an instinct for group cooperation, as its seed, then it is the profound abilities of human thought that allow for it, that seed of compassion to take root and grow. This process is the path up the mountain. It even begins, as the dark path likes to point out, in the dark of instinctual behavior, which is unconscious behavior. Now, bringing conscious awareness into the equation is the seed of sprouting and beginning to grow. However, like a real plant, the growth of that seed into a full and mighty tree is a precarious process and one without any degree of care or without any guarantee of success. But the point is that the path of compassion does have a biological relevance. It has more than that, but having a root in our biology legitimizes the need for placing critical importance on compassion, especially in our education systems, I would think. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> um, but let's clarify something before I go any further. Compassion is connected in most people's minds to being nice in a general sense. And that is correct to a degree. But it isn't the same as that either exactly. Um, social behaviors, especially public social behavior, is a very complex web of rules and accept, uh, expectations, and many or most of them are unfortunately uh, driven most often from instinctual rather than contemplative motivations. So it's, people don't think a lot about those things. Or you can put it another way uh, to make this point is simply that looking like a good person isn't necessarily the same thing as being a good person. So it's here that the path asks us to become truly compassionate. We must look into the shadows of our own minds and behaviors, which is where our unconscious motivations lie. If we cannot separate our own fears and desires from our perception of things, we cannot really be said to see anything of the world, especially other people. So apart from the rarest of rare true sociopaths, the great majority of unnecessary suffering inflicted on humans comes from other humans who are they themselves not seeing that they're victims are equally real and relevant living beings as they themselves are. Now, I am not 
I'm not at all trying to claim that compassion or developing awareness of compassion will simply make all crime disappear. Uh, no, uh, it, it, it's more of a compass bearing in that sense. It provides a guide to a proper alignment of intention with action, making it less likely, if it's instituted well, that a person or a people, a group of people, will act out in ways that are harmful to others, ideally. But the point is, compassion makes walking the path of human potential not just possible, but real, right up through the highest levels of human achievement, because it frames everything through a lens of mindfulness and caring, rather than instinctual aggression and competition. Um, and let me say, and let me say here too that I, I am not talking about sports and other uh, what I consider to be positive forms of competition. I, I want to be clear. I think sports or games are great. I encourage people to participate in them. Uh, so, so many uh, valuable lessons are learned on the field or the mat or the ring. But all sports are really cooperative competition. Even in the UFC octagon, the warriors battling it out there uh, stay within the rules of the sport. There is no victory in cheating. All true champions know this. That's the beauty of sport. So instead, what I'm talking about is life as a whole. Our instinct for self-preservation is tied to group participation, which means we have the wiring to work with and care about each other fundamentally. Now, this is usually present within family groups, but at some level of abstraction outside uh, the most direct relationships we have, uh, the people, the rest of the people in the world um, tend to be less than real in our minds. And, you know, I know it's, it's impossible for a person to like really know 10,000 people, never mind a million or a billion people. So compassion here must be worked out uh, in these realms with much more refined perspective and understanding. And this means personal reflective contemplation. Time spent actually working on that, like a real chore. It's not easy, nor is it initially fun. Looking at the mirror of your own life shows you all the shadows of your mind that your mind might be hiding from you. It is the dark path, but without it, the depths of compassion cannot be reached. And there's more. <laughs> Um, as the famous karate teacher Funakoshi Gichin once said, compassion without pity. The reason compassion is often understood uh, through the recognition of suffering in others is because suffering is a fundamental part of life. Uh, the story of the Buddha, the Gautama Buddha, the original Buddha, makes it clear that disease, old age, and death are unavoidable. No one gets a life free of the suffering that these things cause. And that has some powerful implications. When you look at a person who is plainly suffering from a terrible injury or a horrible disease, there's usually, of course, a desire to help them. However, unless you are specially trained in some way, there will be little to nothing you can do to actually alleviate their suffering directly. The one thing that can be done, though, is to see them and to lovingly bear witness to their lives. Compassion makes this possible as it provides the bridge 
as I said, to connect with them. However, it does no one any good to be broken down by the witnessing of another's suffering. If someone you love, if you imagine that someone you love is very ill, it's not likely that they will want you to become depressed and unhealthy as a result. The recognition of another's suffering is very important in the relationship to developing compassion. But allowing that suffering to cause distress and harm to the observer only makes things worse. That's pity, not compassion. Now, this is not easy. The balance between that which you can affect and that which you cannot is tightly wound here. But in the end, reality must reign supreme. The truth is, the world and other people cannot be controlled. You can see this if you look and really see one another. You realize that other people, though separate, are equally real as you yourself are. Then you know you cannot justify forcing them to think or act in a particular way without their consent. Now, Again, uh, not to get too uh, imaginary with all this, because I know high, uh, absolute force is always a possibility, but that isn't what we're talking about. It's the recognition of the sacred value of seeing others compassionately. To do this, you cannot hold the desire to control others at the same time. Control is a product of a mind looking at the world through fear. Compassionate fear cannot simultaneously exist in one mind, as no two states of mind can. Right now, I am seeing many prominent politicians and other supposed authorities making terrible and grand generalizations about significant populations within their own countries and regions. People who don't want to do what they are told have and will always exist. People that are willing to take larger risks than the majority of the population will always exist. Anything short of using absolute force will not work to change these folks' minds. This is true, not just for the obviously problematic COVID policies we're experiencing, but for all extraneous top-down control of society. It won't work out well, and it will cause most likely, serious damage to our world to try. Which brings me back again to the final need in Maslow's list, the need of self-actualization. This is the idea of a person who is able to engage in the world as fully and meaningfully as they can. This can never be accomplished by a person who does not have agency over their own lives. And it's here that you can see compassion and personal freedom are deeply tied together. If force and coercion cannot be com expressions of compassion, then I, you know that all dictatorships by nature can be said to be without moral value of compassion. They're, they're not a part of that structure because they can't be. So to bring that home to today's world, after the last better part of two years, with all the intense fear and propagandized stories, and a real and new respiratory virus, many people are approaching a breaking point. 
The needs we have for social connections have been wrecked in many ways. And that has never been done at this scale in this way before in human history. We now fear each other's faces and intentionally keep from making physical contact with one another. This type of world has little chance of lasting long term and zero chance of being enjoyable. So I believe we must reconnect to compassion for others, for all others, even if they're not vaccinated. We must too be careful that our fear in our minds doesn't cloud our thinking and push us to want to control others, which is, as I said, a complete disconnection from compassion. Further, we need leaders who understand basic human nature, who can really weigh out cost-benefit analysis accurately, who understand the deep and important connections between values like fairness and personal responsibility and personal freedom. People who have reached for and attained some significant level of their human potential within their own lives. Leaders who have a real understanding of compassion, in other words. And I'm not just talking about politics or other obvious uh, positions of leadership in the community. We all need each other to become leaders and heroes, each of us, at least unto ourselves and our families. Developing compassion is a challenging act, especially as our world is plagued with fear. But in a way that has always been the case. So, if you know it's true and you aren't afraid, then go and hug someone who needs it. Look at the people on your on the opposite team to yours, the ones that you're told to hate and dislike, whether they be anti-vaxxers or right-wingers or left-wingers or CEOs or bankers or cops or anything else. They are people. Even if they commit crimes and have to be held to account, which they do, they're still people. This is not an excuse for bad behavior. It's in recognition of humanity in others. Now, the vast majority of people, of course, are not criminals. They're just people. We need to remember that. So I say be courageous and remember the love of life and remember your compassion. Don't be afraid. Walk the dark path. You are not alone. Thank you for your time. See you soon.